Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuckinistas? What's happening? It's Mark Marin. It's me presenting Mark Marin. Thank you. What's going on? Before I get too carried away, Sean Lennon is here. Sean Lennon. Uh, yeah. Son of John and Yoko. One of the, uh, the, the sort of, I, of, by no intention of himself, somewhat royalty. Rock and roll royalty. A prince. Really, and I'm sure that's not going to make him happy. But we had a, a, a lovely conversation, and uh, you'll hear that soon. I would like to say I hope everyone's all right here in, in Manhattan. Apparently half the, half the fucking island went dark last night, and uh, one of our screenings got canceled. The early screening up at the Landmark 57 got canceled because, I don't know, I, I think some kid stuck a fork in a plug you know, up on the west side and just shut the half the city down. A transformer went. I, I, you know, I, I can't trust my brain anymore around this stuff. I don't know what that means. You know, I, I did watch the entire season of Stranger Things. There could be, there could be monsters involved. That's all I'm saying. I haven't seen anything uh, that indicates that. But I, I am. I hope everybody made it through all right. We did lose a screening. I apologize to the people that that went to that. There was nothing I could do. There was nothing any of us could do. There was no one we could call. And in and oddly, and, and this is hard for me to admit, it didn't have anything to do with me. And it did it, it affected a, a good deal of Manhattan. And I'm I, I'm happy to say that I it didn't have anything to do with me. But but even the fact that uh, you know it was on the second night of our premiere weekend here in New York City, uh, there was a time where something like that would happen and I'd be like, this, this is, you know, this is just, just my luck. You know, there are people stuck in elevators, you know, people locked in things, you know, it just, it, the thousands of people were compromised. I, I think most of them are okay, but you know, the blackout went on a long time. I don't even know if it's fixed today. I'm recording this Sunday, but there was a time where I'd be like, this is a sign. This, uh, this probably happened because of me. This is payback. This is karma for some past behavior, for a vestige of shittiness. I looked up the word vestige before this show, so I'll be using that. Today's, today's word is vestige. Noun, a trace of something that is disappearing or no longer exists. Yeah, my, my, my past? Here's the other definition. The smallest amount, in parentheses, used to emphasize the absence of something. Oh, and then in biology, a part 
or organ of an organism that has become reduced or functionless in the course of evolution. That, of course, is happening to a good deal of people with their brains. So, the movie. We did a lot of screenings here, and there's, there's screenings coming up that I want to tell you about. I'll be in Chicago tonight, Monday, at a screening of Sword of Trust at the Music Box Theater. I'm doing a Q&A with Joe Swanberg after the movie. I've been doing these Q&As in New York with Lynn Shelton. It's just going to be me and Joe. Lynn's going back to work in uh, Los Angeles. This Friday, July 19th, the movie opens at the New Art Theater in Los Angeles, Opera Plaza Cinemas in San Francisco, Shattuck Cinemas in Berkeley, E Street Cinema in Washington, D.C., Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto, Kendall Square Cinema in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the Jacob Burns Film Center in Pleasantville, New York. Wow, this movie's really opening up in places. We didn't know this was going to happen. You kind of hope it happens, I guess, but I didn't anticipate any of this at all. I didn't even think that Lynn was going to be able to make a movie out of what we shot. And not only did she make a movie, but people seem to like the movie, and the press has been crazy. It's been crazy. It's been written up in, in very big outlets that people think are credible. <laughs> New Yorker Magazine, the New York Times, the, the, all the ones. We've done a lot of talking on the radio. It's, press tours are crazy, but it's been fun. But the movie's getting very well received. It's a very watchable, funny movie. And this is, I'm not bullshitting you. Am I the kind of guy that really bullshits? Am I the kind of guy that even remembers to self-promote? I like the movie, and uh, people are enjoying it, and it's very exciting to, to kind of step into all these theaters and see the uh, the laughter come from uh, the, the room, like real laughter. Not the program laughter that happens after you watch a movie that took a lot of money to make, and the jokes are all worn out before they come out of the faces, and you kind of laugh because there's a rhythm to it, and you know you're supposed to laugh. That kind of weird surface laugh that kind of hovers somewhere between you know, the brain and just above your heart. like It's sort of a, a, ref, a, a reflex. Like, <laughs> that, see, that sounded kind of real, but it wasn't. The laughter that happens with this movie comes from a deep place because you can't control it. It's funny how many things we do on reflex. Patterns, people. Vestiges. I don't know if that even fits, but uh, I've established it as the word of the day. Uh, Lynn and I did Q&As at uh, several. We did like five of them. The first night we did at the 92nd Street Y with my friend Sam Lipsight. It was great to see Sam. It was a nice conversation. And then uh, my my family was supposed to come out. Uh, they were all planning to come to the show. That would be uh, my, my father, his wife Rosie, my uh, Aunt Linda, my Uncle Bill, uh, my cousin Lisa, my dad's cousin Jeff, my dad's cousin uh, Norman, uh, Lisa's kid uh, Nick and his girlfriend. I didn't realize it was going to be that many, but, you know, I don't see them that much. So I thought, well, that'll be good. And then the movie starts. They're not there. And then we're you know, about, about an hour into the movie. An entire parade of my family just kind of waddles into the theater and walks by me and Lynn sitting at the back of the theater. I'm like, you give me an hour in? So I don't know what happened, but it didn't work out exactly right. And uh, now uh, I'm going to another screening today because it's Sunday. And they're trying again. And I've already, already gotten a text that there was a train problem. Family, man. It's great, right? It's great. Good times. Uh, so that, but that screening was great because uh, Sam was there, and then the the following day Ben Sinclair hosted one. I never met 
him before. We had a nice conversation about uh, Southwestern Jews, uh, not on stage, off stage. He grew up in uh, Phoenix, where you know my brother lives and where my ex-wife, one of them, is from. And I spent a lot of time in Phoenix, so that was exciting. People were laughing and asking fun questions, and then. Tom Sharpling and Brendan McDonald, uh, not together, they moderated uh, a couple of the uh, Q&As down here at the IFC. Always good to see Brendan. It's interesting when Brendan moderates a thing with me because, honestly, nobody knows me as well as Brendan McDonald. This guy, has, you know, he has to listen to all of this shit that I'm saying right now twice a week on top of me talking to people. He's actually got pretty good boundaries, but you know he knows me real well, so so that's always an exciting thing. I always learn something about me I didn't know when Brendan talks to me in public, uh, and you know it's one of those moments where it's like, oh, okay, that's okay, yeah, that is me. You're right, you're right, and now now everyone knows. And Tom Sharpling, of course, is terrific, and we had a great time with him. And then the next night, Ira Glass uh, moderated too. That was last night, and uh, we went out to uh, me and Lynn went out with. Uh, with Ira for a little snack afterwards. Had a nice conversation. I don't think I've ever talked that long to Ira Glass in a non-professional environment. And you know what? He's a nice guy. Smart, nice guy. And uh, apparently he's got a radio show or something on. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. This Life is American, is I think. But uh, so it's been good. The reception has been good. We've had fun, you know. And, you know, moving through the vestiges. You know, Lynn has a past here as well in New York. So she got to show me the vestiges of her past in new york in the in the shape of buildings and you know things that used to be there that's what you do when you you've lived in new york and it's all gotten away from you it's like oh there used to be a place here where people did bad things i missed that when people did bad things right here at this place and i lived right there right over the bad things happening that's that's the memory of new york if you lived here in the 80s or 90s oh back when i lived here some really horrible shit was going on over here but you got to know them the people that were doing the horrible shit. So Sean Lennon came to my house and it was, it was kind of exciting. I don't, it's as, as Duncan Jones, uh, David Bowie's son told me, this is a very small club of these children of particular mythic musical presences that are somewhat eternal. I mean, I, mean, it, I guess it's a matter of taste. You know, I, I, it is, if you're a certain age or a certain person, you know, meeting somebody related or, you know, or the offspring of a Beatle or of David Bowie, you know, or, or of uh, Bob Dylan. You know, there, there's a few people that, you know, where you're kind of like, wow, that's wild. That's your dad. Whoa. But Sean Lennon put out a record. He's put out many records. He's a talented musician. And uh, his most recent album, South of Reality by the Claypool Lennon Delirium, uh, is available now wherever you get music. Uh, and he's on tour this summer all across the country. You can go to the ClaypoolLennonDelirium.com for tour dates and cities. Les Claypool, of course, from Primus and many other Les Claypool-oriented projects. Les Claypool is one of those guys where it's sort of like, he just keeps making stuff. And it's it's usually kind of amazing and it's weird and it's its own universe. I know I, know I should interview Les Claypool, but I really need to sort of, swim through you know jump into the rabbit hole of claypoolness and uh and and figure that out before i do that but he is doing this it's a fun record and it actually is fun and funny and a little dark and very instrumentally satisfying uh you can kind of feel a, a lot of different influences in there but it's uh it's it's a wild record this record and i enjoyed the record and i listened to a lot of uh, julie julian oh boy that's the other one 
that's Sean's. I didn't talk to Julian. I talked to Sean about Julian, but I get my kids of John Lennon mixed up. So in a, in very rare circumstances, but I just I just did it. Just how often does that happen? I didn't mean Julian. I meant Sean Lennon. How often do you get to say that? But I talked to Sean. Uh, I listened to a lot of his music. I listened to a lot of Yoko's music because, as you know, I just watched that documentary uh, called uh, "Above Us Only Sky" about the process of making Imagine and that part of the the life there. But I, you know, I was sort of like pleasantly surprised because, you know, wow, because Sean worked with Yoko, and you know, obviously it's his mother. But it was a good conversation, and I never know how delicate it is. Like, do we talk about your dad right out of the gate? You know, I don't want to be disrespectful to your talent or, or any of that. So, how do you manage that? You know, I don't know the guy, but we actually had a really, a really sweet conversation. We had things in common in terms of our brains, and uh, there's some really interesting moments in this. So, uh, this is me and Sean Lennon back at the garage. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts it's only recently that i've even started calling myself a guitar player yeah because i just kind of i don't know it just seemed it Mm. it wasn't my identity because i I never sat and did too many scales or i was never trying to shred or anything right i was always just trying to make music you know write songs so yeah, I never got a Les Paul, and it did seem kind of like the Holy Grail. But you're playing serious guitar. I mean, you're playing leads, and you're doing the thing. Yeah, I've been playing more leads in this band, I think mainly because Les Claypool is sort of known as an instrumentalist and right. a sort of athletic player. Yeah, And I think it was it's more expected. But at the same time, it's also that he's sort of encouraged me. Yeah. To, to solo more, which has been nice because I've never really considered myself a, a a guitar player per se. I was more of a songwriter in my mind, and yeah. he, and he was the one who was like, "No, nah, man, like you know, you got some traps. Like, why don't you play?" And I'm like, "Really? Like you play with you know, you play with everybody." Why do we judge ourselves like that? Because if you really think about, because I, you know, I'm not even a professional musician, but I judge myself. So like, why do we think? What do we think being a guitar player is? Like virtuosity. But yeah. if you listen to most of the leads you probably like, they're just like, you know, they're not, yeah. they're not like virtuosity. Sure. And I mean, it's, it's almost, a, it's might be a kind of arrogance or something. Cause you know, what do you expect yourself to be like, you know? Right. What do you want to be? Ingway Momstein? Yeah, exactly. Who wants that? I can't even listen to that. It's like listening to math. Yeah. So <laughs> I've, I, I've, I felt really good about him, you know, encouraging me to take more solos and then, you know, it's funny. I mean, not, not to like 
bring this up in an in a ego kind of way, yeah. but I, I wound up on on the cover of Guitar Player with him, and I was just like, whoa, what's going on? I mean, I just, it definitely you was surprising. Yeah, it totally surprised me, because I just never expected that to happen. I mean, yeah. when I, and you know, when I grew up, the but people exciting, that were on right? that, it, it was exciting. It was like, wow, but I also still don't fully accept that I can play guitar that well. And, you know, I think it's actually, you know, the self-critical part of your brain, it's like always you know, always critiquing every little thing you right. can do or not do. And I think to a large degree, that part of my brain is correct. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, I am a sort of poser with the guitar. I mean, I, I'll try, but I, there, you know, I never put in the hours to actually get the dexterity that someone like Les has on the bass. I think people imagine him as I did to literally be living in some, you know, wizard castle, <laughs> you know, in the yeah, woods and, yeah. and taking mushrooms every day. But he's actually... Uh, he, he's 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 really surreal and oddball in his art, but in his in, in private, he's he's a responsible dad. You know, he's yeah. running his wine business and, and he's uh, fishing. Yeah, he's fishing all the time and fixing his cars, and he's a real like reliable dude. But it seems like I just guess musically, he seems to be a like uh, he likes to get out there. You know, what well, I, mean? I think he's one of those people that is just sincerely unique in his approach to his instrument and right. to songwriting. And that's really rare, you know? I think a lot of people try to find originality, and maybe you can get there through just the kind of methodology of, right. of, of trial and error. But yeah. with him, I think he just has an innate uh, perspective on music that, yeah. that uh, it just comes naturally to him. And, you, you know, he's one of the only players, which is especially difficult on bass. Yeah. Whereas if you, you hear about 30 seconds of him playing on anything and you kind of know, oh, that's Les Claypool, if you know his playing. <laughs> exactly, especially bass. Which is really hard to do on bass because, yeah. um, well, you know, it just, it's sort of a rhythm section instrument, so it takes a back seat often. And he, he treats the bass the way, you know, lead guitarists, you know, treat, treat the, the, yeah. the lead guitar. For sure. And, um, you know, there have been people who took bass solos before him, but he, he has this... He has an oddball approach. It's fun too. He's it's a really fun, fun bass player. No, he's he's honestly one of the best players I've ever played with, and it's just made me a much better musician having to keep up with him. The one thing I realized in just playing the the, the crappy way I play is that you know it, it's about you being able to communicate with however you play. Like some of the the most notorious players just in relation to Guitar Player Magazine, it's not because they're virtuosos, it's just because they you can you can feel them through how they play. Like you can identify them like you just said about Les. But yeah. that doesn't, like, like Keith Richards is no genius, but he's Keith Richards. Yeah. Right? Well, I've, I mean, you know, it, it's, it gets, it's semantical at that point because I think I would consider him a genius if we're talking about rock and roll Right, but, it, but, it, but it's simp it's not complicated. Yeah, you know, it's like it's his own. He has figured out a way to be at one with that thing and express himself uniquely through it, and and it's not it's simple. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, and 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 that's why I think it's interesting to me that taste yeah seems to be a more important factor in making good music, at least, than skill. Because as you said, there's all these people who have chops. Uh, out the window and like you don't want to listen to their music whereas you know people like Lou Reed who you know he wasn't an accomplished guitar player somehow he connects with music so I think it's more about your feel sure. and your taste than anything and, I, and also the working of the people you're playing with 
That's a beautiful thing about being a musician is that, like, you know, you got a few other people with you and the combination of them, even when you're not feeling great, you know, or maybe you think you're not playing up to where you need to be, everybody works together, right? Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, in the best case scenario, but there are all there are people who are just singular and want to do it alone. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not completely alone, but there are some Stevie Wonder records or Prince records where he, they basically played, you know, I mean, yeah, right. the vast majority <laughs> right. of the yeah. instruments, including drums and everything. It's crazy. Yeah, and those people manage to get this kind of jam going with themselves. It's yeah. like they're they're a multiplicity of musicians. Right. But for the most part, I think music is collaborative and. I think that's what makes it so hard because these bands, when they find their chemistry and their success, I think there's also like an an inherent resentment that a lot of people have towards each other because they rely on something that they can't quite quantify. But right, and you know, they can't do it on their own. And they go off to do their solo career, right? And and it doesn't work, right? As well, and I think that's that's therein lies the complexity of you know. And then there's the expectation. Bands. Right? There's the expectation of them to deliver on their sound or whatever they put out before by the label, by the audience. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. You know, for example, Mick Jagger's solo career, like it's famous that he <laughs> tried to move on. I think it was in yeah. the 80s. Yeah. And it was hard. And, and it's it's hard to, because on paper it would make sense. As you said, like it's there's nothing Keith is playing that is impossible to learn for the average guitar player. But so, it's hard to play it like him, but yeah, you can it was, learn it. Yeah, but the, but, but it, you'd, you'd imagine that at Mick's level, he could get musicians that would yeah, you, know, but, you know, fit the bill right. enough to make it compelling, but it didn't work out, and that's it's really interesting, actually. But the other side of that is when Keith did his solo, you're like, oh, these would be great Stone songs. Inversely, exactly, yeah, yeah. in the same way. But, you know, even like, you know, I just read this thing about... Uh, McCartney on tour which which was an amazing observation it was kind of haunting that like he's doing these stadium shows doing the Beatles songs and everyone's like yay and 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 he said that there there he he actually accused the audience of being like a black hole but but it seemed kind of really like when I read it I'm like that's heavy but what happened was is that he's playing arenas and when he's doing Beatles songs all the phones are up and then he does one off the new album all the phones stop. Yeah. So you just see this, you know, thousand points of light, and then he does whatever the hell the song is, right. and they all go the blackness. Out. Yeah. It's Isn't so that a fun- trip. It is so funny how the cell phone has supplanted the lighter as well, and also the experience of being there. I mean, people are experiencing it in real time through their phone. It's once removed. It's, it's very crazy. meta. It's really odd. So before we talk about specifically the, because I, I, I there's a couple. Um, songs on the new album and one on the last one you did with last that are that are dark and 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 one one is i think you, you know potent and and kind of haunting and sad the the oxycontin girl out, uh, song on that last one yeah but the one on this one about parsons the you know the uh the the crowleyite um, rocket scientist yeah. who used to hang out with hubbard and his wife and that whole business like yeah. as a subject matter i'd like i want to discuss how that comes up sure Be- and you know, cuz so few people know that story i think they might have tried to make a movie about it what was parsons first name was it john or robert or- jack parsons jack parsons yeah I, I, um i someone gave me a book called sex and rockets which yeah. was just it's a biography of jack parsons which i realize now is controversial in some bits i i don't think it's considered the official you know uh historical document right i think there's some subjective stuff in it i mean that's probably true though of all biographies right. which is another subject of course but um 
It's fascinating. And, you know, as you said, he was, he was a JPL rocket scientist. In fact, he founded JPL. Some people say that uh, JPL doesn't stand for Jet Propulsion Labs, but Jack Parson Labs, because he was sort of, you know. Right, and he's, and he's conjuring demons with L. Ron Hubbard Meanwhile, by doing Crowley also, rituals yeah, he and was sex also, magic, right? Exactly. So he's in OTO, which yeah. is the Aleister Crowley right. religion. Yeah. And he becomes a Magister Templi, which apparently is uh, the head of that, I guess, branch. Yeah. And uh, I think also Elrond had wanted to be in OTO and wasn't allowed in or something. So there was some kind of tension there, whereas Elrond wound up maybe sleeping with Jack's wife or right. something odd like that. Like, or it was a threesome and it was sex magic. Or yeah, they dressed were... as goats or something. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I just, I mean, I love that story. The thing about the delirium is that it's kind of a whimsical project. Yeah. More so than anything I've ever done before. Right. So it's sort of given me permission to really have fun with the lyrics yeah. and, and even the music as well. But it's more playful. So I'm always looking for fun stories to encapsulate. And, um, you know, it, I really like looking for real life stories to, to, to write these kind of surreal carnivalesque songs because, you know, it's a cliche, but life is definitely stranger than fiction. So, you know, this is a true story. It just seemed like the perfect fodder for... For you and life. For a delirium song. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of examples like that. Like, um, there's a song called Amethyst Realm on the record that I wrote about this girl I'd read about in England who who claims to have cheated on her fiancé with a ghost. Yeah. And he, I think the yeah. fiancé walked in on them somehow, and uh, she breaks up with him and renounces living men because she says, you know, phantom sex is so much better. Sure. So I thought that was just amazing. So I, I guess turned that's that into one, one way to, to, to... Well, it's one particular point of view on masturbation. You know, if you're not using porn, aren't we all having phantom sex when we do that yeah i mean look if that's all but I, but i think you know i think her claim is ghost coming it's interesting and her yeah. name was actually amethyst realm which was just like that sounds like a song title it's trippy but a lot of the subject matter is just uh kind of just me looking at how weird the world can be there's another song called boriska which is about a real kid in in Russia, yeah, who through his mom sort of declared that he was uh, from Mars, yeah, and uh, then his mother and I, some people around him claimed that he had magical powers sure. or psychic powers, and yeah, that he could read at three months old or something, right? And my whole take on it was just after watching a couple of videos because his mother's a doctor, she seemed like she was in charge, and so I don't know if this is true, but my take was she put him up to it. And the kid just looks kind of miserable, but is like regurgitating all the stuff he's been told to say. Yeah. And it's sort of a scheme, you know? It's, sure, it's, it's, a, a, it's a con. Yeah, it's a con. So that song is about that. But well, yeah. I mean, but there's that, America is, is such a, a fertile landscape for that kind of like, you know, looking at things in, in a satirical way or looking at things that aren't satirical and realizing like, what the fuck? Like they're, the Easily Charmed by Fools is like, that's that's a fundamentally American song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, Easily Charmed is more of a less song, and so is the other one you mentioned, which was, uh, I forget the first one you asked. Oh, oh yeah, Oxycontin, Oxycontin Girl. Girl. I think for less, that was just, you know, again, yeah, it's pretty real-life stuff. I mean, obviously, we have a, a major Oxycontin epidemic in this country, and I think... Right. Having kids made him especially worried about that, you know, kids of college age. The and turn in that song where, you know, the boyfriend turns her out, you know, and, and, and given the world we live in, to have to listen to those lyrics and go like, yep, 
Yeah, you know what exactly. I mean? And, you know, he's lucky. Both of his kids are totally straight-edged and really smart and cool. But I think there was a moment where he just, you know, he, he, he always talks to me about how having kids has influenced his universe and that it, you're, he, he describes it as your universe goes from you being the sun and things orbit you yeah. to suddenly there's a sun that's your kid and you're one of the planets orbiting it. Like that's the and center. And you have to your... make sure he's he's nourished. Yeah, you're, exactly. You're the nourishing planet. Yeah. So I think um, yeah. some of the songs or some of the narrative perspective are come from him just, you know, having kids and worrying about that. And I, I like that sort of both records kind of move through, you know, you know, just straight up, kind of like, uh, like a lab, like kind of a orchestrated psychedelic trips. But also, there's kind of like some Floydy stuff in there, and then there's some like Zappy kind of thing. Like it kind of moves through, like him and you. But it, like you can hear the influences in there, you know. Yeah. Well, I just feel lucky that I've managed to find myself in a project where we can just be that playful. Yeah. You know, and we've been given permission cuz under the guise of prog or psych, we're allowed to just have fun. You got the permission anyways. I mean, yeah. like you can do whatever the fuck you want, really. Sure, sure. You're not in a high pressure situation. You I guess that's always true. You want to sell a few records, but it's not like you're competing for, you know, billboard charts, are you? Sure, but I guess no, it's not so much that. It's just it's just there's something about there's something about the 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 character of this project where it doesn't it doesn't feel odd to have a five minute intro of noise and 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 random you know jumbling spoken word or something and no one blinks twice. Whereas I think in other projects, if I did that, I think people would be like, "What is this?" You know, there's just you know no, it's, it's an it. expectation kind of well, thing. Well, that's a question that like sort of going back now that like I remember you because I used to do comedy. Back in the day at the Boston Comedy Club, which used to be above the Bagot Inn, like there, there was a period there where you were playing in there. Oh yeah, that like, was years ago, probably. Was, I think it was before you even recorded. I think it was like the some of the first outings with whatever combo you had put together at the time. Yeah, and well, like I remember it was sort of a, a thing, like you know, like Sean Lennon's downstairs. Like, what does he do? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it was weird for me at first, like. Uh... I think I was incredibly naive and I had no idea how people or the world might might you know might it might feel about me. I just I just just because I was I was in a group of musicians in New York. We were all friends. There was the Beastie Boys and there was this band I joined called Chibomato. And were you in your teens? I joined Chibomato I think before I turned 20. I I don't remember the and exact And that was before day. your first record? My first record was 2021, yeah. So it was right around that time. But it was weird because I just, I sort of took it for granted. You know, we all played in each other's bands. We hung out. We played shows. And then so I went to do a solo record thinking, oh, it's just going to be like that. And it just wasn't. It was... Because of the legacy? Yeah. It was, and and it's funny that I didn't anticipate that. I mean, I should have. You really didn't? Well, I mean, I I knew that it wasn't going to be exactly the same, but the degree to which, the degree to which it kind of made me feel... I guess invisible in a way, because yeah. what I noticed is that a lot of people who don't know me, I mean, because I'd only grown up with immediate friends and family and, you know, teachers and school. Yeah. I wasn't exposed to the public per right. se. So I didn't realize the degree to which people would find it impossible to just sort of look at me and Separate. form an opinion yeah. based on me right. and not project either how I'm not fulfilling or am fulfilling some some idea they have about my dad or my parents. Right. I, it took me years to even understand 
that. Were you insulated on purpose? Was that your mom's intent? Well, no, I, I don't mean I was insulated. I just simply mean I'd never been public. I hadn't, right. most people are, well, you are weren't, insulated you weren't doing in that something way. that was demanding public attention. Yeah, I just had never had press or, or you know, media stuff. I mean, a little bit, but it was it was shocking in a way, and it's taken me a lifetime to kind of completely internalize it and understand what it's all about. And now I don't really blame people because I understand it's like, you know, if you have this person that seems significant in your mind, even though you never knew them, but because of the music, like my dad, yeah. it's, it's, it's unreasonable to expect them to see me and not be clouded by, you know, the triggers of, of their ideas of this person. It's so bigger than, yeah, I think anyone, I mean, maybe not you, but can imagine because, like, I mean, you, you know, I go through my life. I don't think about the Beatles every day, you know, but but I watched the recent documentary that your, your mom must have signed off on because she's a big part of it. And mm -hmm. it really reframes her in the history of the Beatles, that Above Us Only Sky, mm -hmm. right? And I just watched it, you know, in Paul, I was just on Netflix and I watched that. And I was like, I, I found myself going like, oh my God, there's so much footage of John and just talking, you know, like, and like, I, I became like crazy. And, yeah. I, and I had this moment where I'm like, I did not realize how much, uh, how important that guy was in my, in my brain. Right. And, and I imagine for most people that grew up with that, especially that generation, I mean, it's, it's like bigger than life. You, you know, so yeah. you got to deal with that. You know, you, you when you decided to do music, you didn't really, was it sort of a family business thing or did, you didn't really anticipate that you would be up against it? Well, look, there's two things I would want to say to that is what's interesting I find is that as big as the significance of the Beatles or my right. dad might be to the biggest fan, right? I think what people underestimate is like that still doesn't compare to how important a father is yeah. to a to a child, right? right? So however anyone frames it to me, and often, you know, it's it's almost yeah. weekly, someone will say, you have no idea right. how important <laughs> your dad was to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm not cynical. I'm, right. I understand it. I'm right. like, thanks. But there's also this part of me that, that feels like, well, you actually have no idea. Right, right. Well, maybe you, like, you would have an idea if you just imagined how important your parents were to you. Right. And that's that's a big deal. You know, so I feel like my relationship to my dad, sometimes I feel like it's hijacked or something in right. that in that if it's people don't even seem to consider it. Well, th that's very interesting because like, you know, when, you know, when tragedy came, you know, you were so young, but, you know, you're dealing with the absence of, of a father and they're they're dealing with the absence of a, a, a almost a mythological being. Right. And not to be. You know, not to be critical, but right. it's like for the most part, as real as their feelings are, right. it's a dream as opposed to what I'm talking about as a physical person who, mm -hmm. you know, taught me how to cut, you know, my food yep. at dinner, you know, <laughs> um, which actually leads to the other question you had, which is, you know, when I started music, did I, was I doing it for, you know, because it was a family thing? Honestly, I kind of feel like, a bit of an imposter and you know I've been talking about this with guitar like I don't consider myself a guitar player or whatever yeah. but compared to all my professional musician friends my introduction to music wasn't natural in the way that it was for most of them meaning yeah. a lot of them were the best musician in their school or right. or uh, they just had a prodigal talent or they got a scholarship because they were just so good at piano those are the people you know not just people who are like I want to get chicks and play guitar well no I think all of us are motivated through wanting to get chicks, you know, I mean, at least boys, but, yeah. or some boys. Yeah. But, um, 
But what I mean is like, I was never like this prodigy where, where teachers were, were like, my God, you've got an ear. Like, right. we've got to send you to Juilliard. So I never had that sort of natural path into music. For me, it really was what you mentioned, this, the absence of my father. It was like yeah. I, There was this huge void in my life. I associated him with music. Yeah. And so I just played music because it was sort of, it was the only way to kind of try to fill that void because as I played music, as I learned the Beatles songs and learned to play guitar, it just made me feel like I was connecting to him or, right. I mean, not literally spending time with him, but, but as close as I could, you know, sure. render to that kind of uh, connection with him because his music was an extension of him. So me playing music was really, it came from childhood trauma, basically. Yeah. It wasn't because like, oh, I'm, you know, yeah. I've got this talent. There was always a better musician in my school. I mean, there's always people with perfect pitch or whatever mm-hmm. who go to Juilliard and become legit musicians. I, you know, I, I always had a certain amount of talent, but it was never a prodigal, I wouldn't sure. say. So yeah, for me, you know, that's why it's kind of odd when I'm looking back at my life. It's interesting because I came to music more out of a kind of as a kind as a kind of instinct to try to heal oh yeah, childhood trauma as opposed to you know, because I was good at it or something. How old were you when you died? I was 5. And do you how do you have intact memories of him alive? Well, that's the other interesting thing. Um I don't know if there's any legit neuroscience yeah. around PTSD but and memory. Yeah. But for me, the years leading up to my dad's death, yeah. I have more memories than I think I should. Really? Yeah, quite a bit. And I've te- and I, I've checked them as well because I, you know, like the the name of this doll that I had or yeah. this person that worked for my parents in Japan when I was only 3 or 4, like I remember things. Yeah. Um and I know memory is unreliable, and every time you remember, you're not remembering the moment. You're right. remembering the memory, and then right. you change it. So, but I, I, I think something about the trauma of that really kind of uh, made those memories indelible. Mm. And then, you know, my my teen years, my memories like yeah, <laughs> not well, so who good. Knows what happened. <laughs> so there's something about the trauma that really ma- woke me up, and um, yeah, I'll never forget it. I mean, it's not fun to talk about, but I have a lot of memories of, uh, you know, um, I mean, you might know, but there was there were crowds of people in Central Park, sure. which was right outside of our apartment, right. and, um, you know, it was definitely, a, it was a rude awakening. Suddenly, you know, I didn't really know even what the Beatles were, and then suddenly there were like a thousand people outside yeah. singing these songs 24 yeah. hours for months. And for years, actually, <laughs> they would come back on on my dad's birthday and uh and uh it was it was very surreal and how did your like you know in terms of because your mother's very musical as well despite what people might think thank you for saying that i appreciate that yeah (laughs) because i agree too she she um i mean the reality is she's she taught me more music than my dad did simply because she was around sure so she was making records i mean that's how i learned to to mix a record, what a compressor was, what this kind of mic did, what EQ was. I learned that all from my mom. Being in the studio? Yeah. Well, yeah, and 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 I, I just like, I was curious to know, you know, as you got older and got more interested in music and, and started to have this experience with your father's work and then, you know, with your mother actively working, 
that you know how, how did your mother compensate for for you know John being gone in your memory like you know either emotionally or or as having that role of of being a single parent well you know it, i i wouldn't want to necessarily speak for her yeah. because i was very young but um i'm not i'm not sure exactly how to answer that question because I've never quite thought about it that way. Yeah. But I would say that um I would say that my mom's parenting was unconventional in that she she didn't want to repeat what I think she would consider the mistakes of her parents right. or her parents' generation. Uh-huh. And I think my father had felt that way too yeah. for the for the time that he was raising me. Um and I guess most parents feel that way. You're, you're trying to be an improvement on what you had. Yeah, of course. And I do think there are incremental improvements. So I think what distinguished my mom's uh, parenting was that she didn't want to control me in the way she, she they tried to control her. Yeah. And so she was very respectful of me from an early age and kind of treated me as a sovereign individual. So in a way, I guess that's what a lot of maybe hippie generation parents did. They sort yeah. of... They sort of went for a kind of mutual respect, friendship kind of thing, mm-hmm. which which was definitely radical, I guess. Com- you know, in right. in comparison to the generation before, who kind of treated kids as slaves and. But also spoken. looking out for you know your best interest and 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 trying to in, imbue you with a sense of of moral uh, in, you know uh, decency. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I wasn't raised with any particular religion, but. My mother definitely has a very, she has a very specific moral compass. And um, yeah, I think part of that morality was to respect individuals and their their autonomy. Sure. And kids as well. I mean, she would always say that to me, that she disliked that kids were condescended to when she was growing up and sort of their, their desires and wants were sort of overlooked. And it seems that like a lot of uh, uh, the source of a lot of her creativity is is childlike and informed by you know trauma and and you know grown up fears. Yeah, well, she came from a very conservative family in Japan. Yeah, and um, you know it's interesting how life works, but I think a lot of the 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 restricted you know life she had in terms of you know s- social mores and 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 behaviors yeah. that were expected of her i think kind of made her the radical artist right. that she was yeah. um you know famously my grandfather told her that when she was starting to play classical piano that women can't be pianists or yeah. or successful pianists and you know that's she always talked about that she always talks about that that story as if it was the thing that gave her the impetus and the energy to to become who she is. Yeah. Because she was like, fuck, fuck you. you, Dad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, a, that's a lot of uh, people's impetus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fuck you, Dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's well, it's interesting because, I mean, I just find the relationship between trouble or trauma or difficulty in life and 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 sort of successful outcomes in terms of the characters of the people who go through it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a paradox, isn't it? I mean, life is very odd in that way. Um, what I mean is like you can't 
you know, obviously some of the the most interesting people tend to have had a lot of difficulty yeah. at some point. Sure. It's sort of the way that you learn about the most profound things in life. And you can't really get there unless you kind of have some, I guess, have to navigate suffering it. or something. Sure. Which I just find that to be so interesting. It seems like a paradox, but, you know, often when people get even diagnosed with some illness or something, they always say, like, you know, now I'm awake. Like, now I understand. I understand myself or right. I appreciate. It takes that. Yeah, and there's something... Well, you, you harsh get, about that reality. Well, know? a lot of people move towards uh, a, a, as secure a life as they can have. That you know, something that that like might seem to guarantee them a certain sense of safety, whether it's institutional or job or all that other stuff, and then they kind of like just lock into a pattern. Whereas creative people, if they really pursue that, they're always going to be at emotional and physical risk because of the lifestyle they live or the risks they take emotionally. So, or or if they're you know, really talented. Usually that comes with a certain amount of doubt and addiction problems or whatever is going to happen. So, you know, they're out there and, you know, you know, battling this stuff, you know, day to day. And if they survive it, they, they come with a, they come upon a real wisdom, I would think. Yeah. And it's interesting to me. I mean, this is just, you know, philosophically interesting, but people can tell you these lessons oh, yeah. when you're a kid and you can even, take it seriously and try to internalize the wisdom. Right. But it's in, it isn't until you go through those things that you truly understand it and, and you know. And, right. And, and then you have your own story about it that you can tell somebody yeah. else who'll be like, yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. it's, and it's, I just wish it wasn't that way. I wish, I wish you could just be told <laughs> Do you and then you get it. But somehow our biology is, is is stubborn. Yeah, fuck you, Dad. <laughs> but in, but even in a in yeah. a in a in a superorganism yeah. way, in terms of the human race, it's like, for example, with something like global warming. Yeah, it seems like no matter how much we talk about it, I fear that it's going to take some kind of real world consequence, like an experience that will then obviously you know, then we'll take yeah, I, it seriously. I, I, I think that I feel this, that way too. And it makes me uh, sad as well. I, I do, I'm doing a, a bit about it now, just sort of, you know, what is it going to take? And, and, and at that moment, will we be able to adapt? Whereas like you would think right now, it's like, well, it's pretty clear, you know, yeah. what, what has to happen. It's, 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 you know, it's just yeah. dumped like six feet of hail in Mexico. And we're yeah. just sort of like, that's an anomaly. Yeah. I, I don't know. But people are also in denial because, uh, you know, I think either out of shame or out of uh, a sense of uh, hopelessness yeah. or they, you know, they or they just don't want to believe it's true. Well, denial must be evolutionarily n useful. Of course. Um, I was here. I, I, I was I heard something about how it's not enough from an evolutionary standpoint to be a good liar. Because pe people are humans are just so naturally sensitive. I mean, that's why we love good acting because we're all quite nuanced in our perceptions of facial muscles and uh -huh. um, vocal tone. So it's not enough to be good at lying. It you have to also kind of believe it yourself. Got to sell it. You have to have you have to have the ability to lie to yourself. Yeah. Because only then can you truly not get caught right, and that's by why the we enemy the, or whatever. This, well, that's why we have this president. Yeah, for example. <laughs> yeah. But I find that to be truly interesting because the idea is that believing your own bullshit is an evolutionary, 
you know, uh, a skill that was yeah. selected for an in all skill. of us. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, you know, obviously we all know people who are, who are too far gone in that direction and we're just shocked. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, we've encountered like, really, you know, do you, do you really believe what you're saying? Yeah. But I think the truth is that we all have that ability. Of course. And if we hadn't had it, we would have died and our genes wouldn't have passed on. So we, we, we are the survivors of a, a lying species, oh, which I a, find to be interesting. Wow. It is really interesting. You can write a song about that? It's a little complicated, but, you know, <laughs> it's hard to whistle along to. We, we are the, what is it? We are the, the survivors of a, a lying species. Of a lying species. There's I mean, the first line. It's a, it's a hit. <laughs> Definitely going to be a hit. If I can get my mom to just do some wailing over it, I think we'll have something. <laughs> She'd do it. <laughs> she Oh, she's always up for it. So, like, all right, so going back, though, I think it's interesting that in order to build a relationship with your father's absence that you, you know, integrated his work into yourself. It is interesting, and I don't know if, you know, it's kind of, you know, pop psychology on my part, too, because it's, it's not like a professional told me this. This is my own interpretation sure. of me, and so, That's all you, need. you know, I could just be making it up. I don't know, but it felt that way. Um the reason I say that is because I remember playing p- piano before I could play or yeah. I had a lesson or anything and just playing it knowing that that was his piano and kind yeah. of missing him. So, I mean, God, it sounds like a sob story, but it's true. So, I mean, so that was my... It's a sad story. <laughs> yeah, it was sad. But, um, you know, I remember the first time I figured out some of his songs. Yeah. It felt really good. What'd you start with? Um, I think the first one I learned was uh, Hide Your Love Away. Hmm. That Norwegian Wood and um, um, Julia was the hardest one. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that. In fact, still today I can't play this one F minor uh, nine chord. It's 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 it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I play guitar every day, it just never <laughs> stops hurting. That first fret. But I, yeah, it felt really good in a way that it it doesn't. It never felt learning other people's songs. I mean, I loved learning Hendrix and you know, right. Cream, but that was always just like an accomplishment on the instrument whereas learning one of my dad's songs felt kind of like a sacred thing it felt like an intimate yeah. spiritual kind of thing well, it, it also has genetic resonance nice some I think you should coin that term too that's another hit <laughs> another hit song that's the name of my next CD genetic resonance <laughs> so like because it seemed to me like listening to all this stuff that like on the first record, you were you were really making a a a, a sort of you know fairly sophisticated pop record, right? You know, employing some of those chords and 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 that style of writing is that true? Honestly, I I'd like to give you an intelligent response to that, but I don't know. My first record was me literally making up a song a day, yeah, and then mixing it that night and moving on. I think I did the whole album in two or three weeks. Yeah. And I think it was my mom's influence. She really believes in spontaneity. Yeah. So she really believes in channeling lyrics. Like they just come to her. Right, right. And I really looked up to her. So I made a record in that fashion thinking, thinking that people would think it was cool that I was doing something that was like a diary, like a demo, like something mm-hmm. really intimate but not overworked and just sort of a stream of consciousness thing. Yeah. But then I realized when we were releasing it that 
there was kind of no way to make that clear. It just right, even right. if I said that, it was just like, no, this is your debut. This is you right. know, this is John Lennon's son deciding to you know make a statement about who he is as a musician. Whereas for me, the statement was supposed to be like, oh, I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna be really loose and and not uh, polished about this yeah. in order to to counter expectations of me getting a big record deal or something right. like my brother had done. And, you know, I respected him for that, but I felt like, and I had been offered those kinds of lucrative sure. deals where like, we'll get you this guy to write your song and this producer. And it just didn't feel like me. And because I was hanging out with all these indie cats, like yeah. the Beasties and then yeah. Sonic Youth, it, it, to me, it just seemed cooler to do something understated and but, new york too yeah. yeah and so it was really off the cuff and kind of random i mean i look at the lyrics sometimes i'm like man what was i thinking it literally was just like the cat in the mat okay done yeah, yeah. you know because i i sort of <laughs> i think i was also scared to work on the lyrics too yeah. much because i was scared to try to be smart so i was just like you know forget it yeah just just write stuff that rhymes right so that record is a little hard for me to listen to in a way to be honest it's like some of it i really like but um it's kind of like listening back to like some Walkman recording that you made when you're just jamming with your friends and right. you're all just like you know hanging <laughs> yeah, out and you're like yeah, hey yeah. there was a cool moment there yeah, but right. I it's I think I was so shy that not really not really working too hard on completing a a, a real album whatever that meant was my way of sort of easing my way into music in sort of in through a back door or, or sideways as opposed to taking it on yeah you know right. head yeah. first and and, and and because of the reception of that record or that the, the, the sort of rude awakening of the ruthless reception i mean i'm sure you've seen spinal tap yeah you know when, when they're just like reading the bad reviews right. and rob reiner's like you know you've had some terrible reviews throughout yeah. your career and uh this one review comes to mind it's simply a a two-word review. It's uh, for the album Shark Sandwich, Shit Sandwich. <laughs> They're like, you can't print that. Is that even true? Like, no. But yeah, I had a Shit Sandwich review. I'll never forget it. it was NME basically just said, are the Beastie Boys releasing Sorry No Hopers on the, as a joke on the world? And, mm. I, and that was it. That was the whole review. I was like, wow. wow, that's my Shit Sandwich review. But to be honest... There was no negative review for that album that I didn't agree with on some level deep down because it, it's true. It wasn't meant to be, you know, something that kicked ass. It was just, it was more like little bits of, of a diary of, right. of a very naive kid. But did those reviews, like you, like you said, kind of like, was that, you know, more the moment of, of what it would, what you would have to go through to be a public person uh, doing something. Well, I think that would have been true if I had made a different kind of record. So it was kind of compounded, meaning like not only was there the difficulty of, you know, being a son of, but then there's also the difficulty of the kind of odd record I made and trying right. to, you know, each of those things would have been difficult independently, but together was just kind of a, a clusterfuck. Did it spin you out? It definitely made me not want to make a solo record for a long time. And well, it confused you didn't, me. Right? I didn't. Yeah. In fact, to this day, I still sort of have cold feet about doing solo work it's mainly because well i don't know i mean i want i was going to ask you actually what do you because this is how i feel do you feel like when you get a really negative s s statement review yeah. or just even like a, a youtube comment 
Do you feel like it only will hurt? It only hurts if you kind of agree on some level. That's how I feel. Yeah, I, no, I, I think that's true. Like and if you don't agree at all, why would it hurt you, right? I mean, you're just like, oh, you're crazy then. But, but the problem is, depending on you, you, you know your your insecurity, you know, almost all the negative ones are going to be like, no, I never really thought that about that. But that's, that's true. probably true. <laughs> you can take it too far. Sure, you just use it as a bat. You, yeah, you, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. it, like you integrate. Like, and then when you see a positive one, there's part of you that's sort of like, nah, that's. Yeah. There, there, when, I don't do the comment thing anymore, uh, or look at it. And I've learned how to to deal. I'm I'm very sensitive, so it's all going to hurt. Right. But like I've I've learned to be like, just wait till it goes away and move on with your life. Right. But you know they're trying to hurt you. Sure. I mean, if somebody does a sophisticated, you know, real piece of criticism, yeah, you know, with with interesting points, you know, you can integrate some of that. I think, and, and those are the ones where I'm like, well, that's sort of true. Like, you know, usually a, a real review or a real piece of criticism will will say some, you know, almost good things, you know, then you know one really good thing, and then like two paragraphs of like what was wrong. Yeah. And you know, if it's if it's well thought out, you know, sometimes that that that's encouraging in some weird way. Sure. Yeah. That you know, it, it kind of makes you more like, well, I'm gonna. I, I never thought of that that way, and now I'm gonna integrate that. Well, if it's if it really resonates and it's a an accurate criticism, that's like a gift in a way. Right. But I guess from my perspective, is it's I I wish in a way that a lot of the people who say, oh, is that me? Sorry, I'm so sorry. Bro. It's okay, buddy. You good? Yeah. Paul's son. Oh. He's a sweet guy. Um, <laughs> but was, oh yeah, I just, I often wish that the people who were spewing the venom about me, yeah. I just, I don't wish they would stop. I just wish they knew that I totally agree with them. Like then there's nothing they said that is like a new idea to me. You yeah, know, right. it's like, it's like not, it's like, well, that's, that's the, the only in difference. Your head. Yeah. You, like, you know, yeah. I, I envy people that aren't that hard on themselves, but I just can't. It's not something I can manufacture. It's not one of those genetically alterable things that I can just believe. It's also a cultural thing, maybe, because I grew up in New York on the Upper West Side, and there was, I think it was... You guys still in that house? Well, my mother is, Oh, really? But I think there was a sort of uh, an unspoken idea that the more self-critical you could be was proportional to like what a good person you were like it was sort of rewarded being self-critical i guess Whereas if, if you weren't self-critical you were teased and made fun of you know in, unless you were the teaser right which is that you're <laughs> a bully worst. right so i feel like i was sort of raised with that value you know it's like a, it's like the woody allen perspective on life and that was considered being a thoughtful person right you know, self-loathing right. was thoughtfulness in a way. Whereas I don't think that's true of all cities. But it's right. But it's, there's also a false humility to it. And there's also a sort of narcissism to it. Well, that's uh, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say because, well, that's what I meant about, you know, feeling bad that you're not Ingwe Malmsteen is a kind of narcissism. It's like, sure. what, like who do you think you are? Right. Like, <laughs> you're not even close. <laughs> like, right. you know it's what inverted I mean? narcissism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're just, it's an, it's an excuse to spend all your thoughts on yourself without, you know, thinking you're a narcissist because you're not grandiose. Right. So when you do the first record and you have this thing, like, you know, and you, you're sort of put off of, of doing solo work. Now, in that moment, you know, your mother's doing, you know, her work. How, how does she handle that rejection you know with you well she's a a world leading expert in rejection i would say you know 
I think she's got a doctorate <laughs> in in snarky but, media. I, that's why I feel bad after watching Above Us Only Sky, you know, because you get this thing locked in your head. And, you, you know, there there's some... Did you watch it? Um, Yeah, but I... Yeah, but yes, I, I have. I mean, I just... I've seen all that stuff. Sure, before. Yeah, yeah. But the interviews with the guys who were there, the older guys, were, were just sort of like, you know, it was it was all Yoko that, that shifted his perspective. You know, and I think it's important for, like, all those people that mythologize this whole thing. That That's, like, important new information to reframe your mother's, you know, art and talent. You, you know, and, and it was very exciting for me to be able to see it that way because I hadn't thought about it in a long time. But it's a, it's a it's a rebirth in a way. Sure, I mean, I have a lot to say about that. Oh yeah. Firstly, <laughs> I think that the culture has come to a point where we where we are collectively re-examining the past. Yeah. Sometimes too much, but in terms of uh, more recent. Uh, Understanding and uh, understandings of, of of what sexism and racism were, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and whatever people call the patriarchy or whatever, and yeah. I, and I think the the simplest analysis of what happened to my mom is, I think it was a different time, in which a lot of kind of subtle, latent racism and sexism was, you know, unnoticed, and I think she was a victim of that, but um, on the other hand, I would say that recent history especially it it is sort of an optics war between arguably subjective views mm-hmm. of reality yeah and the reason i say that is because i was i grew up being able to read lots of different biographies and histories of not just the beatles but my parents yeah you know each of them with a completely you know contradicting or disparate view of what they were or what they did yeah and so I've always been aware that, you know, if, if people who, who actually lived in a time of film, video, micro, microphone recordings, photographs, could be misinterpreted so drastically, then how could I expect any history of anyone, you know, in the past to, to be anything like a truth? Right. You know, so I do think that history generally is a kind of optics war. And sure, the real truth will always have to be probably harder to understand because it's probably going to have conflicting elements and and more mundane in a way maybe more mundane but um i'm not sure but what i, I guess what i'm trying to say is like it's there's usually truth to all perspectives to some degree but i think the most important thing you said about that was you, you know people who are who 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 live this dream uh in the dream about who your your father was mm. And, and you know, as compared to your experience of him and your loss of him, you know that that there's no way they can engage the empathy in that moment necessary to even take that in, right? Sure. So, so the real life element of yeah. of living, you know, in that that zone, hmm. and it's a rarefied zone. I mean, I've talked to, like, I've talked to uh, Duncan Jones, I've talked to Jacob Dylan. I mean, there's a small crew of you. I mean, and Duncan said that to me. He said, you know, there's only a few of us yeah. who have these fathers or parents yeah, that's true that like you could like you know even talking to him like you know you guys are you know eating as a family you know you know, watching tv you know you know, learning how to put your pants on and stuff yeah. and and i don't know that that people even want to humanize these guys that much yeah so when you have this human experience it, it almost 
that doesn't even register. Which, you know, is something I totally understand and 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 sympathize with because it's happened to me. I mean, I've had, you know, people that I put on a certain kind of pedestal and then it kind of gets ruined if you get to talk to him too much or something. Like you know, who? Lou Reed? Well, I won't say any names, but, you know, <laughs> no, Lou was great. He yeah. was cool. But, you know, sometimes your idea of what an actor is going to be like sure. and then you talk to him and you're like, I oh, God, now it's ruined for me, you yeah, know? Right. Yeah, yeah, you don't. It's and right so I understand there. that. Yeah. You know, you, you, you want to hold on to that kind of precious feeling you have. Sure. Sure. Yeah, because that's well. That's it's 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 a you know it's in the same area of religion and hope and 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 faith. You, you know, it's yeah. it, you know, mythology. I think I read you said that somewhere about religion that you know you, you choose to see it as mythology. I, I don't know where. Well, you said yeah, that. no, I do. That's amazing. You heard. I, I've said that before. I mean, I guess. Well, it's, it's, I, I've had different feelings about religion throughout my life. I mean, I grew up without any religion, so I was really extremely cynical about it actually when I was young but I think I've gone from being a sort of militant atheist to admitting that I'm actually agnostic in the end because I don't think you can honestly say you're an atheist you can say you 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 err on the side of atheism but truly if you're honest I think you have to say you're agnostic until right you know, you want, you want to hedge your bets. Yeah, know. well, because because <laughs> you can't really say, even if yeah. it's unlikely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I consider religion mythology, but that doesn't mean I'm putting it down. No, no, I. But get I, it. it's through the kind of Campbellian power of myth. I don't know if you've read Joseph Campbell, but yeah. his idea of how there are these archetypes throughout sure. all the religions, yeah. and and therein are very profound lessons and important stuff, and. Yeah. You know, that's not to say it's it is or it isn't supernatural, but yeah. the lessons are there and they're important, whether they're supernatural in origin or not. It almost doesn't matter because it's about these universal human stories that that are helpful. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I mean by that. You know, but I I, I have so many different minds about it because part of me also just looks at all of it as, and when I say all of it, I mean especially uh, uh, you know established religion as a kind of acceptable insanity. Like, there are different things in all societies that we that we allow. There's different tolerances for what is basically a kind of craziness sure. um, or delusion. So I think of it as acceptable insanity because no matter how much progress we make with science and how austere and, and important and accomplished our culture is in terms of figuring out the standard model and, you know, quantum computing or whatever. We all, we always still have a tolerance for this kind of well, accepted insanity, which is interesting to me because it's fascinating that we could have all, we could have all of this rational thought and like, you know, math and the Principia Mathematica and all these incredible rational accomplishments. Yeah. But still that doesn't really chip away at all at this sort of Belief in these un, unprovable, you know, deities and forces, and wasn't in the same sort of rubric, if that's the way you use that word, as what we were talking about earlier. That you need to, you have to believe the lie. Exactly. Like it yeah. is a survival. Exactly. Mode. So I think I think that's, I guess it's a bittersweet truth is that we all have probably an inherited ability to kind of believe in fantasies to to our own you know to our own benefit because i think maybe without that skill 
the reality of life might be too terrifying. Harder to deal with, exactly. Well, yeah, the, the, the human, like most people, have an innate compulsion to believe in something bigger than themselves to find meaning in life. But getting back to like your mother's PhD in rejection, yeah. so was she able to put it into perspective for you? Um, I wouldn't say that she completely figured it out. I think you know she remains human. I, I was always amazed that after having gone through so much negative attention, yeah, let's call it, uh, that she was still hurt when you know there would be some snarky hurt. comment. Yeah, she's still very sensitive. To well, be she honest, she was one of those people. What we talked about before, where you know she was, you, you know. Uh, a totally unique individual expressing herself in in a way that was, you know, you know, not diplomatic or or pandering. So she was one of those freaks that you know was going to be made fun of. She's uncensored. Yeah, yeah. And you know, even even our Japanese family at one point disowned her. Technically, yeah. I think from the official family books, yeah. whatever. Um, and that was actually when she married this guy, Tony, who was her second husband but he was you know american it was yeah. essentially that was all it took just marrying someone who wasn't japanese and so she was rebelling against that That's, they didn't do it with your dad though um by then well what's interesting and i guess typical is that once they became kind of famous as john and yoko then the family kind of started you know this isn't the whole family but certain right. members sure. of, of the older generation because yeah. my cousins and stuff i love all of them but um yeah they were, i think at least what I've been told is that, the, you know, they started to be nicer again, which I think right. was hurtful as well. Right. And the same thing happened to my dad, actually, with my grandfather on his side. Um, I think it's famous that my my grandfather came to one of his shows and wanted to, like, hang out or something, yeah. and my dad tried a little bit, but I think ultimately he felt kind of hurt that he wasn't around before and then right. kind of was seemed... Excited oh, about I see, the, I see. Opportunistic the Beatles thing. Yeah. yeah. So I think that connected my parents in that they both went through this kind of rejection from their family, you know. Yeah. And then I think that made them specifically, par you know, uh, uh, complementary to each other because they understood that experience together. Yeah. And when he finally did another solo record, yeah, how'd that go? Friendly Fire was my second solo record. Um, yeah, it went better than yeah. the first one. I was more prepared. I worked harder. You know, I wrote string arrangements and I uh, I worked on those songs. Yeah. And I'm I'm definitely prouder of those songs. But um, you know, there's something weird about me. <laughs> I I've, I I almost never play music from the past. Yeah. In, when I'm touring a new project and and I don't really know any other musician who's like that I mean it's usually just sort of expected that you yeah. accumulate you know a catalog of songs and yeah. you kind of refer to them right. throughout your life but I just have this weird I just have this weird part of me that almost can't deal with the past I'm just like I don't want to deal with it I don't want to listen to it you know if someone puts on those records I'm just like ah oh, just shut it off it's yeah. like I can't I you don't know. either. Like I, you know, I've got six or seven, uh, you know, four or eight hours of comedy under my belt over the past two decades, and I don't remember half the shit, man. Yeah, and I don't know <laughs> if I want it necessarily. Yeah. I mean, not to be too mean about it. Like I, I res I'm, I'm grateful that there are people out there who like, you know, 
those records, and I'm really grateful for that. But just personally, I've never, and it could be shooting myself in the foot, but I, I've never nurtured that kind of catalog thing. So I'm always right, just, you're not, I'm always kind of burning a bridge with myself, right, and, right, and totally committing to whatever I'm doing at well, the moment. Well, that's the freedom, and you can see that in, in in the work you've done, and also like you know, in some ways, not to be you know a dick, but like you know, it's fortunate that you didn't make an album full of hits. Thank God. <laughs> Thank the Lord. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if I had those hits? Yeah. Well, you'd be playing them. Yeah, I'd be playing them. And then you'd have to deal with the, the phones going I'd off. have my Botox surgeon on the on the phone all the time. Who knows? I need more Botox. You know? Um, yeah, you know, I, 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 I believe in the idea of not having any regrets, though I, I think that's impossible. But of course. I think conceptually it's a good goal. And... Um, I don't know. Re- recently, I don't know if you saw it. I I watched uh, a podcast. I think it was Rogan had this guy on named Naval. Naval. I don't remember his last name. It's yeah. an Indian name, and he was talking about how happiness is not proportional to intelligence. Like there's there's tons of high IQ, you know, high highly functioning, sure. successful people who I would are, think it'd be antithetical. Who are miserable? Exactly. Yeah. But he thinks. What, he, he said, so how smart are you really if you're not happy? And so he, he, he talked about this idea of how, how he practiced reframing everything that he could in a positive way, if he could, not because he thought it was more true or less true, but because it, treating it like a muscle, like doing sit-ups. Right. Like you just keep doing them. Yeah. It's not fun, but you develop, a, you develop an ability. Yeah. Right? So, so I've, been, I've been trying to do that. You know? Did it work? It's working. I mean, it's only been a couple of months, but I, you know, I have this tendency to kind of, as I said, it's I guess it's the Woody Allen school of thought, where I, you know, I can be kind of pessimistic about things or or critical as they're happening. But I've been attempting to reframe things positively, and you know, it's it's what I'm thinking to myself is like, would it hurt to just try? No. Right. What does it hurt to just try to see if you can look at this? more positively. It so. also frees up some of your brain because a lot of times it's just habitual reaction. Exactly. And and you know and and it's something you you know the people who do that which I do it's it's sort of like home base for you, right? Exactly, so, but it, it's a learned identity, I think. I don't think it necessarily can No, came... it's a, it becomes an obstacle because you're afraid right. to experience happiness or you're afraid to experience vulnerability or joy yeah. because when you have that thing if that's your first thing it it's it's protecting you. You know what whatever you know whatever wherever your heart's at. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, now that you say it that way, I I also think that all of us can, our comfort zone doesn't necessarily have to be comfortable. Of course not. It's like you can get used to anything. If you wake up every morning and just bang your head against the wall for six months, you know, one day you'll, if you don't do it, you'll be like, man, I really feel like I got to bang my head against the wall. Well, yeah, I did that on a special. My comfort zone is uncomfortable. Like, you know, it's, it's what you're, you know, it's a weird thing because it's a weird way to use the word comfortable, but but it's true that, you know, whatever patterns you you've created to either you know protect yourself, or, your sensitivity, or, or or from whatever pain you uh, uh, that caused that callus, you know, it, it's how you engage in the world emotionally. Exactly, and I think what a lot of us do is, without realizing it, is we we're kind of some part of our brain is trying to recreate whatever the most traumatic experiences we had were in our childhood. So you're kind of looking for that because it's, it was, because it imprinted you. So whether you know it or not, you might be seeking 
right. neg- negative feelings. Sure, right. right? Yeah, you, you, it's family of origin stuff that you, you tend to repeat with relationships. With, right. You know, and, and, and the and only way reaction. to escape it is to f- realize it and then make a concerted, concerted effort to learn how to not do that, which is as painful as sit-ups, basically, that they suck oh, yeah. to do and it hurts to do. It doesn't feel natural. But I've been trying to do that. So this this was a long answer to, you know, my... Uh, my second record or whatever. Yeah. How do I feel about it? It's, you know, I I felt more negative about it in the past, and I actually, you know, I'm I I see the positive in it. it yeah, it was good. It was a good experience, and um, I've evolved as a musician since then. And uh, well, yeah, you do. You you guys like I when I was looking at the the work, like I you know I do what I do, but you guys seem to always be doing something, and like I you know the soundtrack thing that must be a, a whole other. You know, world of uh, of expression in a, in a in a collaborative way to do film soundtracks. You know that that must be like a whole other set of chops and, and a whole other to collaborate with visuals. Yeah, like that. You know, I and, do love it. I mean, the thing that's great about doing film scores is that you're not serving the purpose of your own artistic sort of desires or, yeah. or plans necessarily if you didn't make the film right you have this framework that takes primacy over any of your feelings or intuitions you have to serve this sort of set uh structure narrative and so it's kind of uh freeing in a way because you don't have the pressure of figuring out what that backbone is or fulfilling some kind of you know, uh, indulgent artistic vision. Yeah, you have the, f- you, you know what needs to be done. Right, right. You know, the 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 map is laid out for you. Right. So it actually kind of frees you up in a way, and I really enjoy it. Um, I've only done like, like three or four scores, but um, and production sort of similar too, right? That you're there to service someone else's vision in a way. Yes, and I have done some production work, and uh, it's funny because it was only when I started producing other artists that I realized why it's great to have a producer. Yeah. Which I do wish I had had for Friendly Fire, for example. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think of myself as an egomaniac or something, but right. there was something in me that wanted to do it myself, produce my own well, stuff. It's a control thing. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not always a, a successful strategy, but when right. you produce other artists, what I realized was, it almost doesn't matter if I have a musical skill as a producer. Yeah. It's just the fact that I'm not that person who wrote the song, who's singing it and right. recording it. The fact that I'm not them gives me this perspective that they simply can't have because they're caught in the myopic, yeah. you know, right. vision of the the macroscopic, I mean the microscopic looking at everything, you know, in front of right. your nose whereas like I can step back and be like, "Oh no, it's not working." or your voice sounded better ten takes ago. It's really hard to 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 understand that stuff when you're in it. Sure. So it's such a simple conclusion, but it's hilarious to me that I never truly understood it because I, you know, I never wound up working with producers because I think I never really understood what they were going to do. It was kind of like, okay, well, you know, I'm playing this. I wrote the songs, and there's the engineer. Like, what are you going to do? You're going right. to stand there and kind of <laughs> talk. And I, I I literally just didn't get it. So. Right. Yeah, producing has been really helpful to me. Well, you produce some of your mom's stuff? I did co-produce. I mean, she's she's always a producer in the studio. She's yeah. very, um, you know, she really has a vision, and she doesn't doubt her vision at all. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, 
you know, it, it surprises me that I'm related to her because she's so <laughs> singular in her vision, and yeah. she and she moves forward without any hesitation. Yeah, and I think you can see that. You know, just watch her do her improvised kind of vocalization stuff. Yeah, that people yeah. often make fun of. Right, she's so committed though. There's, yeah, she's there's not one you know hair on her head that's wondering like, oh, should I do this? Yeah, you know, she's she's a hundred percent. Uh, committed to to the music or being a vessel for right. her music, and I I find that to be well, it's very compelling to watch and to listen to for me. It's it's I think part of what I like about Hendrix solos or something. Yeah, it's just someone thriving and owning their own vision and and realizing realizing the music without any kind of second guessing, and I think. Uh, it's something that I, I I strive towards doing. Honestly, I think for people like me who who are more, you know, prefrontally occupied, meditation has been really good for me. Oh yeah. And both my parents did TM. Yeah. And it so I that's the reason I started doing TM just because it was kind of in the family tradition. Yeah. But it's really helped. It's really helped me in terms of not being totally controlled by that rapid fire critic you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and and at least long enough that you can just play play music and you know get it done and then you can be critical afterwards sure for me i think it's it was hard to it was hard to put that down oh no yeah it's like i can't yeah it's really hard but i think you can learn to do it no i think some people it comes naturally i mean my mom just had it you know she she's she's definitely self-critical in a healthy way when she's not working, but she never brings it to, to, the, to the performance moment. Yeah. And do you think that's sort of the uh, one of the more important things you've gleaned from her? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, because she, yeah, she she just has this unhin- uninhibited commitment to to the music or to yeah. the art when she's doing it. She's unapologetic. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I admire it a lot. Yeah. Um it fascinates me and it's so alien actually to what my character is like <laughs> that I think um yeah. I think that's why I'm I've I was such a big fan of hers and I wound up producing those two records for her um or with her and putting them out on my label. Uh because I knew that I needed to absorb some of that. Yeah. It's a kind of you had to, a, you had to sort of sh- shift the relationship to being in artistic collaboration with her as a grown-up as opposed to sort of a son and somebody who sees her doing what she's doing. Well, in terms of my relationship with her as her son, I think I looked at it as just a cooler way to spend quality time with my mom as yeah. well. It's like, you know, we could go to lunch or have right. tea or, you know, yeah. go to a museum or we could rock out. Yeah, right. You know, it felt a lot more connected. Yeah, yeah. So that was cool, you know, because I'm always looking for things to do with her and playing music just felt like the best thing we yeah, could I, do. I listened to, I think, uh, Take Me to the Land of Hell, which is, like, I enjoyed it. I listened to it yesterday, the whole cool. album. And oh, I never, thanks. I never listened to it before and I'm like, this is like, and now, uh, you know, after seeing that documentary and reframing it, I'm like, well, she's, she's great. What is, yeah. <laughs> she's really doing what she does. She's interesting and I think people underestimate, uh, her as a songwriter as well. I mean, I just, um, my label, Kamira Music, just 
with this other label, Secretly Canadian, we've yeah. re- remastered all her vinyl solo records. Again, it was a nice way to figure out how to be a good son was to remaster all her records and give them to her. I remember giving her a package of all yeah. the new vinyls that were, you know, we recreated the cover and the yeah. artwork and stuff. And I was like, here, you know, Merry Christmas. And she was just really touched. So, oh, you know, it's sweet. just like a nice way to do something with her that's not just boring. And also her, her visual art's a trip too. She's very talented at drawing. And it's funny because she didn't do that much drawing until yeah. she was in her 70s. Yeah. And then she started doing these pointillist abstract uh, uh, drawings like she did about a thousand of them in you know in a couple of years yeah. it just came out of nowhere and yeah. it was really fascinating to to witness i've never seen anything quite like it she just went from not drawing at all to drawing constantly every day like she, we'd be on the plane she's doing it we'd be you know the news would be on she'd be doing it yeah and uh, i think those pieces i don't know if you've seen them i can show you some are one of the most important things she did in terms of changing people's understanding of her yeah because her her art was so conceptual always and installations, avant-garde. yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the average person just doesn't even connect with what she did as or art. Or see it's, it. You got to go walk through it usually yeah. and well, sit it ta- in it. Yeah, it takes a lot. It, yeah. it demands some attention yeah. in a way. But her drawings just speak for themselves. They're right. very immediate. Yeah. And so, yeah, she's done really well. I mean, she's, in fact, she's very inspiring in terms of me seeing the kind of success one can have after 50. Yeah that most people don't talk about yeah. as even being possible. Right. But, you know, she's her art career has really taken off in the last few decades. Yeah. And she, she won uh, the Lions Gate Award, I think it's called, in the Venice Biennale, uh-huh. uh, a lifetime achievement. And, you know, that's like a big deal. That's like getting an Oscar for yeah, an actor. That's great. Um, and But, you know, she wasn't getting that kind of respect sure. for most of my yeah. life. So to see that come to her... It kind of, you know, it's like a hero's journey. It's like if you if you just stick with it, right, and you believe in yourself. It's so cliche, and keep evolving as an yeah, artist. Yeah, it can come to you. Sure, you know, it's people will, will might come around, and that has happened to her. So that's great. And and I, I listen also to um, the stuff you do with your partner. Oh, Charlotte. Yeah, Are you guys still together? Yeah, she's at the hotel. Yeah, I mean, and that stuff's like totally different too. It's it's kind of like um, I don't I don't know. Like I just noticed that you know your willingness, whether it's out of insecurity or compulsion, or or actually a, a need to to express things differently. You know, you definitely do a lot of different things musically depending on who you're working with. Yeah, and that stuff with her is 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 pretty. You know, it's it's sweet. It's it's not. You know, it's 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 danceable. It's got a, a pop vibe to it, but it also has sort of a a strange kind of um, uh, uh, not campiness to it. But there's something. There's a carnival aspect to right, it. There's, yeah. I mean, we were very influenced by early psych. With right. The there's that thing that yeah, almost a garage psych. Yeah, thing. like Sid Barrett and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the Pretty Things and oh, yeah. the zombies and stuff. But uh, again, I mean, people notice that that kind of nod to the past yeah. with that band as as in a way that they also do with the delirium but yeah. with the ghost i don't think it's purely retro like it was kind of it was kind of an amalgam of all sorts of stuff but um that it's band that ghost band of Sabertooth tiger yeah. yeah i just call it the ghost but, yeah um yeah charlotte uh charlotte is one of the most remarkable 
songwriters and musicians I've ever worked with. So that that band is totally her and me. Ongoing. It's, it's not. It's right I think here. a lot of people assumed because she is pretty and she, right. and she was a model that she was just kind of you know a, a stand-in right. you know, or something. But yeah. she she completely produced those records. She wrote all the songs with me, and. Um, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done, and it's because I got to work with someone as inspiring as she is. I mean, she's she really helped me with, for example, lyrics. Like, she's a very good lyricist, and she also has incredible grit. She never gives up. She's never lazy. She has an amazing work ethic. So she really gave me some muscles in terms of just pushing through and trying to write, trying to make the lyrics better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'd always been not lazy about it, but almost like, terrified to yeah, try right so it wasn't a laziness it was actually kind of fear or something well it's good that, that you're with her on that level because if you're like me and, and it seems like we have these things in common that self-critical thing or these you know these these wired in ways of of sort of uh, avoiding you know a type of vulnerability that's probably necessary yeah to 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 do to write songs you know that yeah you know, because like even now i'm just trying to get through it now and just to present your ideas to someone else, if they're really coming from your heart, you're sort of like, nah, I don't want to. Yeah. Why fucking show that to anybody? Yeah. Because like, even if they look at you, if you give them something to read and yeah. you're looking at their face, you're like, give it back. Yeah. And they're like, no, I like it. Nah, I don't know. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> I can be like that too. I've definitely gotten tougher though. I've gotten thicker skin over the years. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's important to be empathetic enough to realize that they probably don't. Why w- don't mean it as badly as you yeah, think. Why would why would they? They're, they you just probably have no idea what a freak you are and how sensitive you are. They right. just think you're a normal person. So they're just saying, yeah, this part could be better. And you're like, what? <laughs> you mean I shouldn't exist? Not, like my, my very existence isn't justified. Exactly. Yeah, I think I had... Hard to live I, with. I have that part of me, but it's definitely... I've 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 just I've decided to be tougher about it because because otherwise you can't yeah yeah I mean you have to be able to grow from constructive criticism you have to be able to internalize it from your smartest friends and take the advice seriously and improve because otherwise you're just gonna basically be you forever which is okay maybe but no but what it is I think it's fundamentally childish and you know coming from you know whether it's a, a, a kind of a, you know, permissive upbringing or, or from in my case parents that were sort of self-involved to the point where it was permissive is that you know you know if you don't get some sort of healthy sense of failure either through sports or whatever the fuck it is or, or at least one parent you know teaching you how to shoulder that stuff I mean you're going to have this emotional part of you that's like five exactly which I think is why I hope the next generation of parenting, the post-boomer parenting, takes a page from both previous generations. Yeah. Because I think, I think you know, it may have swung too far the other way, right? Which is um, not wanting to have your kid dislike you because you're That's crazy. You're being tough on them, and you know, there's this, I guess, fable I read. It's about parenting, like a good parent will tell their son, like, jump off the stairs, I'll, I'll catch you. Like, don't worry, you can trust me. And yeah. the son jumps and you just let him smack himself on the floor. And he goes, why did you do that? And he's like, because that's, you know, this is what the world Life is, is right. going to be like. Yeah. And I think that's really hard to do as a parent because you actually have to, you have to be mature enough to 
to rational rationalize that this is best for the kid, even though it's going to be uncomfortable for you because they're going to be mad at you for a while. Sure. And but if you actually care about them and not your feelings, yeah. then you can prioritize their growth over, maybe they'll always be mad at you for that. But if you really love them, you should be able to take that, your hurt feelings, right. o- for their growth, which is, I think that's rough. difficult. I mean, you don't have kids. No, I don't. You I, want it. I mean, theoretically, I do. I mean, at this age, every time I see a kid, I'm like, oh my God, I love kids. Yeah. But um, it's not something that I've always been like headed towards and Charlotte and I have been together for like 12 years and we're still not married and we're kind of well in one way I think we're closer than a lot of our friends who got married and divorced like several times since we've been together you know we're we're tight so I don't know if we need marriage to qualify it but it's also because I don't think either of us had many examples of marriage being somehow uh, a beacon of right. real love. It, right. It's always been kind of complicated sure. in our lives. Yeah. You know, we don't have many role models who, who are necessarily better off because they're married. I'm sure they're out there, but you know, yeah. we're just kind of finding our own way, I guess. That's good. But in terms of, uh, like, you know, we you were talking about, you know, just in, like we, we really talked about your mom a lot and we talked about your your dad to a degree. But like when I watch something like that, Doc, when you see that stuff, was that part of your, you know, building a relationship with him? Yeah. Um, it's hard to explain this. It's whenever I see a, a film about my dad or go to, there have been museum shows about archival stuff like in Japan or whatever. You know, as grateful as I am that all of that's out there, it kind of, it kind of feels uncomfortable for me because there's something really personal in my heart regarding memories of him, real memories of him and, and just, you know, his books and, Mm -hmm his guitars and, you know, being in the house and just watching the Muppet show with him. Sure. That stuff feels so, so precious to me that when it's externalized into some kind of media format, it actually feels kind of uncomfortable. Mm. I mean, I'm not, it's it's not like it's traumatizing, right. but it doesn't feel as connected as the real life, sure. uh, real world stuff. I, I'll I'll just say it's not as important to me as just you know my personal, sure memories in my own life. And uh, uh, and you you have a relationship with your brother and everything. Yeah, that's great. I, I do. And that's always been the case. It's always been the case. Um, I think. Um, I think there have been different times when we 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 haven't been actively as close but we've always we've always loved each other deeply irregardless of whatever kind of public right. media complexity there was yeah. um i don't think people realize how close we were i mean there were times when he stayed at our house in the dakota and he was taught me guitar and you know yeah. uh when his first record came when his first record came out and was a huge hit i mean he was absolutely my hero yeah you know i mean i i I was as inspired to play guitar because of watching him play the show at the Beacon that I saw as I was, you know, by, you know, my mom and dad playing yeah. music. It was, he, you know, 
he was like the cool, the cool, successful leather jacket wearing better singer than me musician who really was killing it, you know. Yeah. So I totally looked up to him. Yeah. Um, I think the media perception of our relationship is one of the most false narratives I've ever seen. I mean, I think people imagine that we were kind of right. pitted against each other, but that just never happened between us. Yeah. There have been tensions between the family publicly about certain things, but, yeah. but n it never spilled over into our relationship. We've oh, always good. loved each other, yeah. It's so funny, too, because you both sort of like, there is a, a genetic component to your, your vocalization styles that is Lennon-esque. Yeah, but you know he definitely has better pipes than I do. Right, he, but you he can, can really a, sing. There's a phrasing thing that that seems similar. There's something. There's something in there for yeah. sure. Uh, it's funny because, again, my first album. I remember intentionally trying not to sound like my dad because I was kind of nervous about mm -hmm. that. So I wound up singing this way that I, to this day, I can't deal with it. It was very. It was sort of like a whispery whine, and I didn't use any effects on my voice because every time I did, it would make it sound more like my dad. Because my dad, you'd slap or he'd use, you know, flange or whatever. Yeah. So I avoided all that stuff that actually makes my voice sound good. And then I intentionally didn't sing out because whenever I sing out, I start to sing more like him. Like if I push the air, I get more of a grit. And then people start to say, wow, you sound like your dad. So I kind of regret overthinking it. Yeah. When I was young. So now I actually just sing the way that comes natural to me. And, yeah. But I do sound more like him when I do that. And, um, you know, there's nothing I can do. So, yeah. No, no. It's, I think it's nice. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got the that texture in my voice and I, you yeah. know, I can't really avoid it. But I just, you know, I'm just praying that I'm, that there's a, that there's positive growth in my future. I definitely, it's daunting to imagine that I already, you know, had my chance. Well, don't with the, think about with it the, that way. We're, apply your new skills. Yeah, no, I am. And <laughs> I, I definitely play better than ever. And I feel like I understand music better than ever. So, but... Uh, well, I think you're doing great. And I, and I like the new record. Thanks. And, I really appreciate it, man. That's yeah, cool. I mean, I, I was surprised to, to even know that it was on your radar. That's cool, man. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like things get on my radar by people saying, like, you know, do you know this stuff? And I'm like, I don't. And then I ended up listening to, like, a lot of this stuff and getting in to your mom's stuff and then to your, you know, some of your dad's other stuff and then like all your stuff. So like, you know, it's been a, it's been a fun week. That is the cool thing about the internet is you can find something and then very quickly kind of learn so much about it and, you know. And just listen to experience your own, your, your creative evolution. Cause there's so much out there. How are you going to choose this stuff? You know, yeah. but, uh, but it, it, it's great. And it was great talking to you. Mutual man. It was fun. That was great. You got to know that guy, huh? Did it, and, you know, everybody's getting along. Nice. The, the album, South of Reality, by the Claypool Lennon Delirium, is available wherever you get music. They're on tour this summer all across the country. You can go to uh, ClaypoolLennonDelirium.com for tour dates. You can go to SwordOfTrust.com for information on, uh, on, on the Sword of Trust. Uh, Lynn Shelton's movie with me in it and Michaela Watkins, John Bass, Jillian Bell, uh, Toby Huss, damn back it all, funny stuff. You can always go to sortoftrust.com for details about all the different places it's playing. There's a lot of places coming up. All right, no, no music. Boomer lives. <laughs>